Hello everyone, I'm Kathleen Pelly. Welcome to the special omnibus edition of Journey with Story, where you can listen to all of this month's episodes, one after the other. And just so you know, there will be no special intro for the individual stories, no added details and no shout-outs. If you want to hear all of those, then you'll need to listen to the individual episodes and not this version. Got it? Oh, Mums, dads, grown-ups, you can download some free colouring sheets at our website, www.journeywithstory.com. Let's take an omnibus journey with story. Let's take a journey with Pine Trees for Sale. Gomei was a good man, a poor man, and a man of few words. Every morning he sat at his table weaving straw into shoes, and these he sold at the marketplace. Every evening he sat on the bench outside his house and wove straw into rain capes, and these he sold at the marketplace. In the middle of the day, he went out to his rice field to till and plough the soil so that he would have food to eat and some to sell at the marketplace. He was content and happy enough with his simple life, but every now and then he felt a little pang of loneliness. One evening, as he sat down to eat his frugal meal, he heard a knock at the door. When he opened it, there before him stood a young woman. Gomei thought she was the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. I am lost and alone, she said. I am tired and hungry. Can you help me? Now, although Gomei was a man of few words, still he spoke up and said, Yes. He motioned for her to sit at his table and offered her his meal. After she had eaten, he gave her his bed, where she lay down and fell fast asleep. All night long, Gomei sat up, keeping watch over her. In the morning, when she woke up and saw how carefully Gomei had guarded and protected her, she said, Gomei, I am alone in the world and you are alone. Let us marry and make a life together. Now, although Gomei was a man of few words, still he spoke up and said, Yes! Soon after, they were married, and Gomei was so in love with his beautiful wife that he could barely take his eyes off her. In the morning, they would sit together at the table as he wove his shoes until she would say, Gomei, stop! No one has feet that big! In the evenings they would sit together outside as he wove ring capes until she cried, Gomei, stop! No one is that tall! In the middle of the day, Gomei could barely bring himself to leave her and go plough the rice field. And no sooner had he reached the far end of the field than he would drop the plough and come racing back to the house for another glimpse of his beloved wife. Finally, she said to Gomei, we are going to starve if you keep this up. Listen, we have saved a few coins. Take these to the village and pay for someone to paint my portrait on a piece of paper. Then you can hang the portrait at the far end of the field. And whenever you plough that way, you will always see me. When you turn back toward the house, I can wave at you from the window. Gomei was well pleased with his wife's clever plan and soon he had found an artist who came to the house and painted a portrait of his wife. And in this picture she smiled at him with such love and joy 
that he fell in love with her all over again. He hung this paper portrait at the far end of the field so he could plough away from the house and still see the face of his wife. And when he ploughed facing the house, there his wife would appear, waving to him from the window. And so all was well, and Gomei worked happily in his rice field day after day. But one day, a big breeze blew up, and soon it became a wind, and the wind became a gust, and the gust whipped the portrait from the tree and blew it up, 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 and away. Gomei was heartbroken, but his wife said to him, Gomei, don't worry, we have saved some more coins, we can have another portrait painted. But, meanwhile, Unbeknownst to Gomei and his wife, the wind had carried the portrait over a wall and into the garden of the house of the lord of the province. When the servants brought to the lord the portrait, he stroked his chin and said, Hmm, if there is a portrait this beautiful, then there must be a woman this beautiful. Go, get her for me. The servants set off to do their master's bidding. They travelled far and wide from village to village with a portrait until at last they reached a place where the people told them, Ah, believe it or not, but that woman is Gomei's wife. So the servants knocked on Gomei's door, only to see the woman from the portrait standing before them. Now, the servants had good hearts, and they were sorry to bring such news to this happy couple, but they had no choice but to obey their master. Sadly, they explained why they had come, and at once Gomei's wife realised that if she did not go with them, something terrible might happen to Gomei. Quickly, she hatched a plan. Very well, I will come with you, she told the servants, but first, give me a few minutes with my husband. The servants took pity on her and agreed to wait outside while she talked to Gomei. Gomei, said his wife, do not be sad. In a few weeks' time, the new year will be here. On the day of the festivities, come to the house of the lord of the province, dressed in the rags of a peddler, with small pine saplings upon your back. The kind people buy to decorate their gateposts for good luck and long life. Announce yourself by calling, Pine trees for sale! Leave the rest to me. Will you do that? Now, although Gomei was a man of few words, Still, he spoke up and said, Yes! Then the two of them made their sad farewells. The servants led the woman to the house of the lord of the province, showing her through the gate and into his garden. As soon as the lord of the province set eyes on her, he said, Indeed, you are very beautiful, but you do not smile at me the way you smile in this portrait. He was a proud and arrogant man, and so he said, I will not marry you until I have made you smile. As the days and weeks passed, he brought jugglers and jesters, poets and painters, musicians and magicians into his home, but not one of them could coax a smile from her. He offered her delicious foods and fine drink. He showered her with elaborate garments and jeweled ornaments for her hair. But still, she did not smile until New Year's Day arrived. And that morning, Gomei arrived at the house just as his wife had suggested. He was dressed in the rags of a peddler and carried with him many small pine tree saplings. Outside the gate, he cried out all he knew to say, Pine trees for sale! Pine trees for sale! At the sound of his voice, the woman of the house began to smile, a small smile. Oh, 
said the Lord of the province. That is good, but I want better. Gomei continued to walk back and forth outside the garden gate, crying all he knew to say. Pine trees for sale, pine trees for sale. At the sight of her husband in ragged clothes carrying the pine trees, the woman smiled all the more now. A big smile. Oh, said the lord of the province, I like that, but I want better. He ordered his servants to hurry down and push open the massive gates and invite the pine tree peddler inside. Now Gomei found himself standing in the living room of the lord of the province, and all he knew to say was, Pine trees for sale! Pine trees for sale! Seeing him so close to her, his wife stepped forward and touched the trees on his back, chuckling softly. Ah, said the magistrate. Good, 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 but I want even better. Turning to Gomei, he said, Quick, take off your clothes. Gomei did as he was told, and then the lord of the province gave him his own fine robe to wear. Next, the lord put on the peddler's rags and lifted the pine trees onto his shoulder. He began to strut up and down, calling, Pine trees for sale! Pine trees for sale! The woman smiled upon him, then pointed eagerly out the window to the street below. Ah, said the lord, now I know how to really make you laugh. And he hurried down to the yard, instructing the servants to push open the heavy gate and let him out into the street, and then to close the gate again after him. The servants did as he told them. The Lord began to pace back and forth outside his own house, calling, Pine trees for sale! Pine trees for sale! From the window of his house, the Lord heard the lovely lilting laughter of the woman he had wished to marry. Looking up, he saw her standing in the window next to Gomei, who was dressed in his stately robes looking like the Lord of the Province. That is when the Lord realised he was standing outside his own gate, dressed in the rags of a peddler. He started to pound upon the door, shouting, Let me in! Let me in! But his servants had good hearts and did not want to break up the lovely couple who now stood here inside the house. And so they never opened the gate. No one knows what became of the lord of the province, but Gomei and his wife lived there in that house in great peace and contentment until the end of their days. Let's take a journey with the Month Brothers. Once upon a time, in a country called Czechoslovakia, there lived a sweet young girl whose name was simply Little Sister. She lived in a small, dark hut with a mean stepsister and a cruel stepmother. Day after day, these two made Little Sister do all the hard work. She scrubbed the floors, cooked the meals, washed the clothes, sewed and spun and wove, and after she finished all those chores, she had to go outside to bring in the hay and milk the cow. Meanwhile, her stepsister did nothing but flounce around in her fancy clothes, complaining and scolding and whining until her voice was hoarse and scratchy. 
But little sister never complained about her lot in life. Instead, she always managed to find something to smile about or something to put a spring in her step. But this only made the stepmother and stepsister even nastier and grumpier and more jealous of little sister's grace and beauty and sweet nature. The stepmother plotted to get rid of little sister, for she knew that if she stayed here at their house, no suitors would ever come to ask for the hand of her own daughter in marriage. Finally, after days and weeks of scheming, the stepmother came up with a plan. One frigid day in the middle of winter, Stepmother took little sister aside and barked at her. Listen, you must go up to the mountain and find violets to decorate your sister's gown. They must be fresh and sweet-scented, do you hear? But my dear stepmother, who ever heard of violets blooming in the snow? Said poor little sister. Oh, you wretched creature, do you dare to disobey me? Said stepmother. Not another word, off with you. If you do not bring me some violets from the mountain forest, it will be the worse for you. Then she pushed her outside and slammed the door. Poor little sister made her way to the mountain, holding back her tears and trying to muster her courage. The snow whirled around her. A blast of icy wind almost toppled her over. She could barely feel her frozen hands and feet, and the pangs of hunger gnawed in the pit of her stomach. She almost thought of just lying down in the snow and letting her life ebb away, but suddenly she saw a light in the distance. She began to climb toward it till she reached the top of the mountain, and there she saw twelve men standing in a circle around a big fire. Of these, the first three had white hair. Three were not quite so old. Three were young and handsome, and the rest still younger. There they all sat, silently looking at the fire. They were the twelve months of the year. The great January was placed higher than the others. His hair and moustache were white as snow, and in his hand he held a wand At first, little sister felt a sliver of fear. But after a while, her courage returned, and drawing near, she said, Please, kind sirs, may I warm myself at your fire? I am chilled by the winter cold. The great January raised his head and answered, What brings you here, my daughter? What are you looking for? I am looking for violets, she replied. But this is not the season for violets. Do you not see the snow everywhere? asked January. I know well, but my stepmother has ordered me to bring violets from your mountain for my stepsister. If I return without them, oh, I fear what will become of me. Please, kind sirs, tell me where I may find them. January stood up and went over to one of the younger of the months, and placing his wand in his hand, he said, Brother March, take my place in front. March obeyed, at the same time waving his wand over the fire. Immediately, the flames rose toward the sky, the snow began to melt, and the trees and shrubs to bud. The grass became green, and from between its blades peeped the pale primrose. It was spring, and the meadows were blue with violets. Gather them quickly, dear girl, said March. At once, little sister gathered up a big bunch of the flowers. Then she bowed her thanks to the brothers and hurried home as fast as she could. Stepmother and stepsister were astonished at the sight and scent of these flowers. But where did you find them? asked stepsister. Little sister told them about the twelve men she had met on the mountain top. Without a word of thanks, stepmother snatched the bouquet and shoved little sister right back out the door. Run! 
she shouted, and fetch me strawberries from the mountain. They must be very sweet and ripe. But whoever heard of strawberries ripening in the snow? exclaimed little sister. Hold your tongue, you impudent child. Go at once and do as I tell you, or it will be the worse for you. Then stepmother slammed the door and bolted it shut. Once more, poor little sister braved the cold and the wind and the snow until at last she reached the mountain and the blazing fire round which now sat the twelve-month brothers. January was seated in the highest place. Kind sirs, may I warm myself at your fire? she asked. The winter cold chills me. January raised his head and asked, Why do you come here again? What do you want? I am looking for strawberries, little sister answered. But we are in the midst of winter, replied January. Strawberries do not grow in the snow. I know, said little sister with a sigh. But my stepmother has ordered me to bring her strawberries. If I do not, then I do not know what shall become of me. Pray, good sirs, tell me where to find them. January stood up and crossed over to the month opposite him, and putting the wand in his hand, he said, Brother June, go now, take the highest place. June obeyed, and as he waved his wand over the fire, the flames leaped toward the sky. Instantly, the snow melted. The earth was covered in a lush green carpet. The leaves on the trees budded and bloomed. Birds began to sing. And all kinds of colourful flowers burst into blossom all over the forest. It was summer. Under the bushes, masses of star-shaped flowers changed into ripening strawberries. And instantly they covered the glade in a sea of crimson. Brother June told little sister to only take five of the berries home. So little sister carefully scooped up five of them into her apron and hurried home. But when stepmother saw only five berries in her apron, she scolded little sister soundly. Meanwhile, stepsister gobbled up all five of those berries and then, greedy for more, she wrapped herself in her furs and her woolens. I will go myself and find these twelve men you told us about. I will demand that they give me more of these strawberries, said stepsister as she headed out under the frigid cold. She had not gone far before she saw a blazing fire up ahead. She followed the bright light and boldly marched right up to the month brothers and took a place in front of the fire, demanding a basketful of those delicious strawberries that little sister had found. How dare you be so bold, shouted Brother January, and he swung his staff in the air. The wind blew, the snow fell thick and fast. The old brothers, their fire, all was lost in a swirl of white, flying snow. Stepsister soon disappeared into the storm. Back at home, stepmother became worried. What was keeping the girl so long? So she too bundled into her warmest clothes and set out in search of her daughter. But she did not go far, for Brother January was watching, and once more he swung his staff in the air. The wind blew, the snow fell faster and thicker, and soon all was a swirl of white flying snow. Meanwhile, back at the cabin, little sister waited and waited, but stepmother and stepsister never returned. No one ever saw them again. 
little sister returned to her chores, working gladly and happily as best she could. After some years had passed, little sister met a good-hearted farmer who became her husband. Every year the month brothers graced their land with a bounty of fruit and vegetables and sweet-scented flowers so that they never wanted for anything and lived a long and happy life. Now, let's take a journey with Why the Sea is Salt. Once upon a time, long, long, long ago, there lived two brothers, one rich and one poor. When Christmas Eve came, the poor brother had not a morsel of food in the house, so he went to his brother and begged him to give him some food for Christmas Day. Now, this was not the first time the poor brother had come to beg for sustenance, and the rich brother had begun to grow weary of sharing. So, he agreed to give his brother a whole ham, but only if he promised to do what he asked. If I give you this ham, he said, then you must go straight to the dead man's hall. Yes, I will do that, agreed the poor brother, and off he went in search of this place. That evening he came to an outhouse where an old man with a white beard was busy chopping yule logs. Good evening, said the poor brother. Oh, good evening to you. Where are you going at this late hour? said the man. I am going to Dead Man's Hall, if only I am on the right track, answered the poor man. Oh, yes, you are right enough, for it is here, said the old man. When you get inside, they will all want to buy your ham, for they don't get much meat to eat here. But you must not sell it unless you can exchange it for the hand mill which stands behind the door. When you come out again, I will teach you how to work the hand mill so you can use it to your advantage. So... The poor brother thanked the old man for his good advice and rapped at the door of the hall. When he stepped inside, everything happened just as the old man had said it would. All the people, great and small, came round him like ants on an anthill, and each tried to outbid the other for the ham. Oh, by rights, my old woman and I ought to have it for our Christmas dinner said the poor brother, but since you have your heart set upon it, I will let you have it only if I hand it over to you, then I must take that handmill, which is standing there behind the door. At first the people refused to agree to this proposition, and they started to haggle and bargain, but the poor brother remained firm in his resolve so that at last the people gave in and let him have the handmill in exchange for the ham. As soon as the poor brother stepped outside into the yard, he asked the old woodcutter to show him how the handmill worked. Then, with a wave of thanks, he set off for home as fast as he could, but still, hurry as he might, he did not arrive there until after the clock struck Twelve on Christmas Eve. Where in the world have you been? said his wife. Here I have sat waiting hour after hour, and have not even two sticks to lay across each other under the Christmas porridge pot. 
Oh, I could not come before. I had something of importance to see about, and a long way to go, too. But now you shall see, said the poor brother. And then he set the handmill on the table, and first he ordered it to grind light, then a tablecloth, and after that meat and beer and everything else that was good for a Christmas Eve's supper, and the mill ground all that he ordered. Ah, <gasps> bless me, said the old woman, as one thing after another appeared. Tell me, how did you lay hands on such a treasure as this? She asked. Oh, never mind where I got it, replied her husband. You can see for yourself what a marvel it is. Look, look, see the water. That turns, it will never freeze. And he continued to order the mill to keep grinding more meat and drink and all manner of tasty treats to last all through the Christmas festivities. And on the third day, he invited all his friends to join them for an enormous feast, the likes of which had never been seen before. Now, when the rich brother saw such a banquet and swarms of people flowing to his brother's house, he grew jealous and angry. On Christmas Eve he was so poor that he came to me and begged for a trifle, and yet now he gives a feast as if he were both a count and a king, he thought, and he marched up to his brother and he demanded, Tell me at once where you got your riches from. From behind the door replied the poor brother, deliberately trying to keep his good fortune a secret from his rich brother. But later that evening, after eating and drinking his fill, the poor brother felt more inclined to share his precious secret with his brother. He took out the mill and began to order it, to grind one thing after another. The rich brother's eyes grew wide with amazement to see how this magic mill could fill the house with one treasure after another. Now he determined to make his brother hand the mill over to him. At first, the poor brother refused to give up the mill, but the rich brother harped on and on until finally, when he offered him three bags of gold for it and told him he could keep it until after the haymaking was over, the poor brother agreed. If I can keep it for a little longer, thought the poor brother, then I can make it grind meat and drink that will last me many a long year and more. So, all during the haymaking season, the poor brother worked that mill day in and day out, and on the last day of the hay harvest, he duly handed it over to the rich brother. But although he had taken care to show his brother how to start the mill and give it orders for whatever he wanted it to grind, he deliberately did not teach him how to stop the mill from grinding. By the time the rich brother arrived back home with the mill, it was evening, so he went to bed and fell fast asleep. The next morning he ordered his wife to go out and spread the hay after the mowers, saying he would attend to the house himself that day. So, when dinner time drew near, he set the mill on the kitchen table and he said, "'Grind herrings and milk pottage and do it both quickly and well.' So, the mill began to grind herrings and milk pottage. On and on it ground until all the dishes and the tubs were filled. And then everything spilled out all over the kitchen floor. Try as he might with twisting and turning and screwing and shaking. The rich brother could not make the mill stop grinding. On and on it went. So now the mix of milk and herrings rose so high that brother was almost drowning. He threw open the parlour door 
But it was not long before the mill had ground the parlour full too. And barely could the brother wade through the mix to catch hold of the door latch. Finally, he managed to prise the door open and off he ran with the mill and herrings streaming behind him. Over field and farm it poured. Meanwhile, his wife, who was busy spreading the hay, wondered why dinner was so long in coming. Even though the master has not called us home, she said to the other moors, we may as well head that way, for perhaps he needs my help after all to make our meal. So the workers left the field and straggled homeward, but they had only gone a short distance when they saw the stream of milk and herrings and bread all flowing and winding toward them with the rich brother trying to get ahead of the flow. You do not drown in this mess, he cried as he ran past them on his way to the poor brother's house. Take this mill back at once, he begged his brother. If it keeps on grinding, then the whole town will be ruined by headings and milk. Only if you pay me three more bags of gold will I take it back, said the poor brother. The rich brother had no choice but to agree. And so now the poor brother had both the money and the mill again. After some time, he was able to buy a farmhouse much finer than the one his rich brother lived in. The mill ground him so much money that he filled the house with plates of gold, and since the farmhouse lay close to the seashore, it would shine and glitter far out to sea. All who sailed by wanted to visit this rich man in the gold farmhouse. And all of them wanted to see the magical mill because word of it had spread far and wide. Many years went by and one day a captain from a ship who had come to see the mill asked the brother if it could make salt. Yes, of course it can grind salt. Now, as soon as the captain heard this, he desperately wanted to have the mill for himself, no matter what price it cost him. If he could make this mill grind salt, then no longer would he have to sail across the dangerous high seas in order to buy sellers of salt from far-off lands. At first, the brother would not consider parting with his mill, but the captain begged and pleaded until at last, after offering him hundreds of bags of gold, the brother agreed. When the captain hauled the mill on his back, he was so afraid the brother would change his mind that he set off quickly without thinking to ask how to stop the mill from grinding. He boarded his ship as fast as he could and he set sail. A little ways out from the shore he took the mill on the deck, saying, Grind salt and grind it both quickly and well. At once the mill began to grind salt till it spouted out like water. And soon the ship was filled to the brim. Now the captain tried to stop the mill he turned it this way and that way. He screwed one way and another. He banged it and shook it, but no matter what he did, it just kept on grinding salt. Huge, gigantic mounds and heaps of salt. Until finally, the ship itself sank. To this very day, they say that mill lies at the bottom of the sea, day by day, grinding out salt, salt, and more salt. And that is why the sea is salt.
salt. Now, let's take a journey with The Steadfast Tin Soldier by Hans Christian Andersen. There were once five and twenty tin soldiers. They were all brothers born of the same old tin spoon. They shouldered their muskets and looked straight ahead of them. Splendid in their uniforms, all red and blue. The very first thing in the world that they heard was, Tin soldiers! A small boy shouted it and clapped his hands as the lid was lifted off their box on his birthday. He immediately set them up on the table. All the soldiers looked exactly alike, except one. He looked a little different, as he had been cast last of all. The tin was short, so he had only one leg. But there he stood, as steady on one leg as any of the other soldiers on there too. But, just you see, he'll be the remarkable one. On the table with the soldiers were many other playthings, and one that no eye could miss was a marvellous castle of cardboard. It had little windows through which you could look right inside it, and in front of the castle were miniature trees around a little mirror supposed to represent a lake. The wax swans that swam on its surface were reflected in the mirror. All this was very pretty, but prettiest of all was the little lady who stood in the open doorway of the castle. Though she was a paper doll, she wore a dress of the fluffiest gauze. A tiny blue ribbon went over her shoulder for a scarf, and in the middle of it shone a spangle that was as big as her face. The little lady held up both her arms, as a belly dancer does, and one leg was lifted so high behind her that the tin soldier couldn't see it at all, and he supposed she must have only one leg, as he did. That would be a wife for me, he thought, but maybe she's too grand. She lives in a castle. I have only a box with four and twenty roommates to share it. That's no place for her, but I must try to make her acquaintance. Still as stiff as when he stood at attention, he lay down on the table behind a snuff box, where he could admire the dainty little dancer who kept standing on one leg without ever losing her balance. When the evening came, the other tin soldiers were put away in their box, and the people of the house went to bed. Now the toys began to play among themselves, at visits and battles and at giving balls. The tin soldiers rattled about in their box, for they wanted to play too, but they could not get the lid open. The nutcracker turned somersaults, and the slate pencil squeaked out jokes on the slate. The toys made such a noise that they woke up the canary bird, who made them a speech all in verse. The only two who stayed still were the tin soldier and the little dancer. Without ever swerving from the tip of one toe, she held out her arms to him, and the tin soldier was just as steadfast on his one leg. Not once did he take his eyes off her. Then the clock 
clock struck twelve. And crack. Up popped the lid of the snuff box. But there was no snuff in it. No. Instead, out bounced a naughty little imp. A magical creature who liked to stir up trouble. He said, Will you please keep your eyes to yourself? He did not like to see the tin soldier gazing at the ballerina, but the tin soldier pretended not to hear. Ah, just you wait till tomorrow, taunted the imp. But when morning came and the children got up, the soldier was set on the window ledge. And whether the naughty imp did it, or whether there was a gust of wind, all of a sudden, the window flew open and the soldier pitched out headlong from the third floor. He fell at breathtaking speed and landed cap first with his bayonet buried between the paving stones. And his one leg stuck straight in the air. The housemaid and the little boy ran down to look for him. And though they nearly stepped on the tin soldier, they walked right past without seeing him. If the soldier had called out, Here I am, they would surely have found him. But he thought it contemptible to raise an uproar while he was wearing his uniform. Soon it began to rain. The drops fell faster and faster until they came down by the bucketful. As soon as the rain let up, along came two young mischievous lads. Hey, look, one of them said, there's a tin soldier, let's send him sailing. They made a boat out of newspaper, put the tin soldier in the middle of it, and away he went down the gutter, with the two lads running beside him and clapping their hands. High heavens, how the waves splashed and how fast the water ran down the gutter. Don't forget that it had just been raining by the bucketful. The paper boat pitched and tossed and sometimes it whirled about so rapidly that it made the soldier's head spin. But he stood as steady as ever. Never once flinching, he kept his eyes front and carried his gun shoulder high. Suddenly, the boat rushed under a long plank where the gutter was boarded over. It was as dark as a soldier's own box. Where can I be going? The soldier wondered. This must be that naughty imp's revenge. Ah, if only I had the little lady with me, it could be twice as dark here for all that I would care. Out popped a great water rat who lived under the gutter plank. Have you a passport? said the rat. Hand it over. The soldier kept quiet and held his musket tighter. On rushed the boat and the rat came right after it, gnashing his teeth as he called to the sticks and straws. Halt him! Stop him! He didn't pay his toll! He hasn't shown his passport! But the current ran stronger and stronger. The soldier could see daylight ahead where the board ended, but he also heard a roar that would frighten the bravest of us. Hold on! Right at the end of that gutter plank, the water poured into the Great Canal. It was as dangerous to him as a waterfall would be to us. He was so near it he could not possibly stop. The boat plunged into the whirlpool. The poor tin soldier stood as staunch as he could and no one can say that he so much as blinked an eye. Thrice and again the boat spun around. It filled to the top and was bound to sink. The water was up to his neck, and still the boat went down. Deeper, deeper, 
deeper and the paper got soft and limp. Then the water rushed over his head. He thought of the pretty little dancer whom he'd never see again and in his ears rang an old, old song. Farewell, farewell, O warrior brave. Nobody can from death thee save. And now the paper boat broke beneath him and the soldier sank right through. And just at that moment, he was swallowed by a most enormous fish. it was inside that fish. It was darker than under the gutter plank and it was so cramped but the tin soldier still was staunch. He lay there full length, soldier fashion with musket to shoulder. Then the fish flopped and floundered in a most unaccountable way. Finally it was perfectly still and after a while Something struck through him like a flash of lightning. The tin soldier saw daylight again and heard a voice say, The tin soldier! The fish had been caught, carried to market, bought and brought to a kitchen where the cook cut him open with her big knife. She picked the soldier up bodily between her two fingers and carried him off upstairs. Everyone wanted to see this remarkable traveller who had travelled about in a fish's stomach. But the tin soldier took no pride in it. They put him on the table and lo and behold, what curious things can happen in this world. There he was, back in the same room as before. He saw the same children, the same toys were on the table, and there was the same fine castle with the pretty little dancer. She still balanced on one leg and with the other raised high. She too was steadfast. That touched the soldier so deeply that he would have cried tin tears. Only soldiers never cry. He looked at her and she looked at him and never a word was said. Just as things were going so nicely for them, one of the little boys snatched up the tin soldier and threw him into the stove. He did it for no reason at all. That imp in the snuff box must have put him up to it. The tin soldier stood there, dressed in flames. He felt a terrible heat, but whether it came from the flames or from his love, he did not know. He had lost his splendid colours, maybe from his hard journey, maybe from grief, nobody can say. He looked at the little lady and she looked at him, and he felt himself melting. But still, he stood steadfast, with his musket held trim on his shoulder. Then the door blew open. A puff of wind struck the dancer. She flew like a sylph, straight into the fire with the soldier, blazed up in a flash and was gone. The tin soldier melted all in a lump. The next day, when a servant took up the ashes, she found him in the shape of a little tin heart. But of the pretty dancer, nothing was left except her spangle, and it was burned as black as coal. Now, let's take a journey with 
The Long Winter Story. Long, long ago, when the world was still young, before any humans walked the land, a long, dark winter gripped the earth. For three years, the sun disappeared. Thick clouds hung low and heavy in the dark sky. Day and night, snow fell. The animals who lived then in the lower world beneath the ground grew hungry, cold, and frightened. So they called a grand assembly. All the birds of the air, fish of the sea, and creatures with snouts and paws and fangs and tails gathered together to discuss their predicament. But when the animals looked around, they noticed something strange. One animal was missing. Bear. They talked among themselves and agreed that none of them had seen any bears these past three years since the start of this long, dark winter. Still, no matter how strange, they determined that the most important task before them was not to worry about bear, but rather to worry about heat and how they could bring back heat. Otherwise, there would be no end to their suffering. They chose the fastest and bravest among them to go in search of heat. Lynx, fox, wolf, wolverine, mouse, pike and dogfish, a small shark, set off into the world. Far and wide they travelled until at last one day they found a hidden doorway that opened up into the upper world. One behind the other they walked on and on in this new world and after some time they spotted a lake. By the lake burned a campfire and next to it stood a teepee and outside the teepee were two bear cubs. Where is your mother, little cubs? asked Wolf. She is off hunting for food, answered the littlest cub, but you can come inside our teepee until she gets back. So the animals all crowded into the small teepee where they noticed a number of big round bags hanging there. Fox pointed to the first bag and asked, Hmm, well, what is in this bag? That, said the bigger cup, is where our mother keeps the rain. Hmm, and what is in this one? Fox asked again, pointing to the second bag. That, the little cub answered, is the wind. Hmm, and this one? That is where mother keeps the fog. Hmm, and what may be in this next bag? Asked Fox. Oh, we cannot let you know that, said Bigger Cub, for our mother told us it was a great secret, and if we tell... She will be very angry with us when she returns. Oh, don't be afraid, said Fox. You can tell us. She will never know. Then the cubs both whispered. That is the bag where she keeps the heat. The animals gasped hardly able to believe their good fortune in finding heat at last. They looked knowingly at one another and stammered their goodbyes. Outside the teepee, they rushed to a hidden spot and held a quick council. Their first agreement was to move as fast as possible because they knew the mother bear might return at any time. So, after finding another spot to hide, the animals pondered how best to capture this bag with the heat. Mm, we need to distract the old mother bear somehow, said Fox. I know, said Lynx. I'll change myself into a deer on the other side of the lake. Good idea, said Wolverine. The mother bear will see you across the lake and she'll want to hunt you. She'll have to paddle her canoe across the lake and... That will give us time to get the bag with the heat. Better yet, 
squeaked Mouse. I'll chew a deep cut at the bear's paddle near the blade, so it will take her even longer to canoe across. Yes, yes, cried the others. So Lynx went around to the other side of the lake and turned into a deer. Now, as a deer, he wandered near the edge of the lake to attract a bear's attention. In the meantime, Mouse scrambled into Bear's canoe and chewed a deep cut in the handle of her paddle close to the blade. The others hid near Bear's teepee. When one of the bear cubs saw what he thought was a deer across the lake, he cried out, Look at the deer of the opposite shore! The old mother bear immediately jumped into her canoe and paddled toward it. Deer walked slowly along the beach, pretending not to see the canoe, so as to tempt Bear to paddle up close to him. Then all at once, Deer doubled about and ran the opposite way. Old Bear threw her whole weight on the paddle to make it go faster, and the paddle broke suddenly where Mouse had nodded. The force of Bear's weight her into the water. The other animals were watching the hunt from the other side, and as soon as they saw the mother bear floundering in the water, they ran into the teepee and pulled down the bag containing the heat. They hurried to get back to the opening as fast as they could, but the bag was very large and none of them was able to keep up the pace for long. Whenever one tired out, another would take the bag, and in this way they hastened along as quickly as they could, for they knew that the old mother bear would soon get ashore and return to her teepee, and that when she did, she would discover the missing bag. Then she'd be furious and follow their footprints to catch them. Sure enough, the old mother bear was soon close on their heels and had almost overtaken the animals when they spied, finally, just up ahead, the opening to their world below. By this time, the stronger animals were all so tired, they could hardly move at all. Now Dogfish, who was a small shark, took the bag and pulled it along a good way. And finally, Pike, the freshwater fish, managed to inch it along some more. At that very moment, Bear lurched toward them. All the animals together pushed the bag until it tipped through the hole to the lower world. And they each jumped in after it to safety, just in time. And as soon as the bag dropped to the world below, it broke and all the heat crammed inside the bag rushed out. Warmth spread at once to all parts of the world and quickly thawed the ice and the snow. Floodwaters ran high for many weeks, but then they gradually subsided. Now the trees and bushes and flowers that had been covered by ice for so long sprouted fresh green leaves. Spring bloomed and blossomed again. From that time until now, the world has always seen a warm season returning after a cold one, just as we see it today. I hope you enjoyed all of our stories for this month. And if you subscribe to our Patreon page, you can enjoy even more perks and resources. Here's to stories aplenty that fill our hearts with grace and goodness, hope and light, so that we remember, as my favourite poet says, all should be well 
all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Be well, my friends, be well, and join me next time for Journey with Story. Music and post-production was by Colette Jonas.